This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Eileen Mulcrone and to Rina Sarova, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Sam Miller, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 423 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing seasons 2 and 3 of the Netflix animated series Castlevania. And if you missed our discussion of season 1, you can find that at 1 hour and 3 minutes into episode 421. And this will involve spoilers for every episode of the show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Erin Lindsay making her 20th appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels, and the Nicholas Lenoir series of paranormal detective novels, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. A Golden Grave, the latest novel in her Rose Gallagher series of historical mysteries, is out now. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Hi, always great to be here. The next up, we've got Zach Chapman, making his sixth appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in Nature, Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Steampunk Universe, and Writers of the Future. And he also edited the anthology Time Travel Tales, which includes stories by Catherine Wells, Sean Williams, and Robert Silverberg. So, Zach, welcome to the show. Dang, six episodes? That is something to aspire to. <laughs> and also joining us today is Blake J. Harris, making his fifth appearance on the show. He's the author of the nonfiction book, The History of the Future, about virtual reality pioneer Palmer Luckey, and his video game history book, Console Wars, is currently being adapted for TV by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. His latest project is a book about Larry David, creator of Curb Your Enthusiasm and co-creator of Seinfeld. So, Blake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on and helping me catch up to uh, Zach. I'm on your heels, man. <laughs> yeah, just one more, Blake, and you'll be at six, which we all know is the, the place you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's when he sends you the bathrobe. <laughs> That's the epitome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's start off with Blake. And so, Blake, last time we talked, you had only watched season one of Castlevania, and you said it was fantastic. So yep. do you still feel the same way now that you've watched seasons two and three? Uh, I felt the same way if you had asked me after the end of the second season, or especially midway through the second season. In fact, at one point, I like literally had the thought that that high school classes should teach this in addition to Dracula, you know, in, in addition to her instead of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Like I thought it was such a well-crafted series and I don't think it, I don't think it got terrible, but in my opinion, the the third season, basically I feel like in retrospect, the show should have just ended after the ninth, uh, after the seventh or eighth, uh, which would be the second to last and the last episode of the second season. And that the story was over at that point. That's interesting, you know, because actually, um, from from my research, this was originally conceived as a trilogy of feature films that ended pretty much where season two ends. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then after you know Netflix greenlit it for an, a third season, um, I heard Warren Ellis say that they were like, "Oh man, now we have to come up with what the third season is." Um, so, I, I mean, mean, that I makes sense. Like to me, it felt like 
like I, I, I would, g- I give the writers like Warren Ellis and and if there's other writers on the staff, like a lot of credit and and all the filmmakers. But it felt to me like as if you were going to continue the Harry Potter story after he had spoiler alert defeated Voldemort, <laughs> and it's like like you know to continue that and make it entertaining would be a really noble undertaking. But it's like going to be so much less entertaining than it was, and you're probably just better off stopping the story and maybe starting a new story years later or a different sort of story. That was how it felt to me. Huh. Which, which, right. which for listeners sure. that don't exactly uh, know the point, I, I'm basically saying after they defeated Dracula um, is when it felt like the story was over to me. Yeah, so I guess I'll just explain if you haven't seen the show. So you have our trio of heroes, um, Trevor Belmont, the vampire hunter, Saifa Belnades, the wizard, and um, Alucard, who's the half vampire son of Dracula. And they team up and they defeat Dracula. And that's pretty much season two. And then they all kind of go off on their own adventures in season three. Um, so Along about, with like five other different characters on their own. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I think, yeah, actually more, yeah, <laughs> like eight other main characters. But, um, um, but so, um, so Aaron, what did you do? Uh, what do you think about what um, Blake is saying here about season two versus season three? Um, I understand it. I don't necessarily agree, but I do understand that perspective. I think, Part of it is that um, it might come down to expectations too. If um, if Dracula is sort of the big bad of the whole Castlevania franchise, um, then you know he is Voldemort, and and defeating him should be the logical end. Um, but I think you know we've seen with a lot of other different shows that you can have more than one big bad, or that you can have the big bad. Um, reemerge later which is an, you know an intriguing possibility i think that they may be flirted with slightly mm-hmm. um in season three without giving too much away that maybe what we thought was the end isn't really the end um but i think if you take that away and sort of um look at dracula as a more conventional big bad that maybe gets the one or two seasons um but is replaced by another big bad later on I didn't feel that the storytelling in season three was as irrelevant as all that. Um, that being said, there were parts of season three that I thought were were masterfully done and I, and I really, really liked. Um, there were parts of season three, though, that did feel to me like filler or mm-hmm. just incomplete, not fleshed out enough to really be satisfying. Um, and then I, I do have to say, without getting too far ahead of myself, that I thought the wheels fell off completely in the season finale of season three, which I just <laughs> thought was just awful, to, to be honest. I mean, no, that's not fair. The, it wasn't that the entire episode was awful, but there were some scenes that were genuinely cringe-inducing, and I just, yeah. So that was yeah. a that was a shame to me because there were parts of it season three that I felt were some of the most satisfying parts of the whole thing so far, um, but I I do agree that it was more uneven than the previous seasons. Well, it yeah. felt less like a complete thought. I agree with you about the season three finale, but let's um, set that aside for the moment. I think it's worth noting that both that season one on Rotten Tomatoes is eighty percent, and both seasons two and three are a hundred percent. So you know. Overall, it seems like the critical reception to both seasons has been really, really positive. And I, uh, I would also just just quickly say, uh, I mean, I also want to hear what Zach thinks, and and I, I liked your perspective, Aaron. So I want to hear more. I'm glad that you guys feel differently than me, but I, but I just wanted to make clear, like I would definitely, it would, I would give a, a a fresh rating. Like I would say, watch it. I just thought the first two seasons were like masterful, A plus, and the third season was like B minus. So I would still recommend it. It passes the test, but it wasn't. Yeah. You know. Yeah, well, 
Well, let me just say, I mean, I um, I think the show overall is amazing. I think it's really, really well written yeah. and just really intellectual and imaginative and the action's great and everything. And going into this, I would have said that I liked seasons two and three about the same, leaving aside the finale of season three for different reasons. Um, mm. But uh, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like, at least my subjective impression was not that season three was that much worse than season two. Um, Good. But yeah, but yeah, but let's get Zach in here. Zach, what did, what did you think? Yeah, so I think the the same problems that I had with season two um, are the same problems that I have with season three, um, but but maybe even to a lesser extent. So like the heroes in season two do a lot of like sitting around and not doing anything at all. Like once they get to the library, there's like three episodes where they're <laughs> just doing fucking nothing. Um, and at least uh, while there isn't like a, a it's, the season three is not focused as much as season two is. Season two has a big bad guy and all of our characters are together and it switches back and forth. Like the two, the two plot lines are the bad guys and the good guys. And then, uh, after Dracula is killed, then there's like in season four, there's, or sorry, in season three, there's four or maybe five plot lines. I think it's, it's, yeah, it, I think it's like four and it just, goes back and forth so it's not quite as focused um but uh the characters like our heroes are more focused they're like going you know they're moving the plot forward more than just hey we got to the belmont clan's underground library and now let's just kind of look at papers while all the (laughs) interesting things are developed on the b plot so i i i agree with um um, with you, Dave, in that I kind of rate them right at the same. I, I like them both a lot. There's a lot to criticize, but I would definitely recommend the whole series. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they're different, uh, you know, different issues, but, um, yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, before we get too, too much into criticism, I did want to, let's, let's note a couple of the strengths of the show. And we had already said the action scenes are great. And man, the scene at the end of season two where our heroes attack Dracula's castle and they like bust into the entranceway and there's this amazing fight is like one of the best action scenes I've ever seen in anything. I just watched it over and over again. Mm-hmm. And then I'm watching it. And I'm like, man, this music is really working for me. And I feel like this seems really familiar. And I'm like, this has got to be <laughs> music from the game, right? So I look it up and it's like, yeah, it's the music from Castlevania 2. And I was like, oh, that's so cool that they... You know, that they took, like I was saying in the last time we talked about The Legend of Zelda, that they actually took the music from the game and they remixed it into this amazing, mm-hmm. you know, soundtrack. So, um, I don't know. Does anyone else want to say anything they really liked about the show before we get to, uh, to nitpicking on the, about it? On the music, I 100% agree. I really like the music. Um, I, uh, I don't think it's as quite as good as some of the game soundtracks. Uh, I think it's a different composer, but, yeah, especially Symphony of the Night is is really really good, and it would have been cool to see maybe some more of that music in there too, and not just because I think Castlevania three is what seasons one and two are based off of. Yeah, that's that's correct from what I understand. So Zach, you played, um, you said like many of the, how many like almost all yeah, the Castlevania I, games are. I I've played um uh a lot of them. I they recently made a um uh, HD. Uh, remaster. I think it's called um, 
Castlevania Ultimate Collection or HD Collection or, or Anniversary Collection, sorry. And it's really good. It's, I believe, the first six games, and most of them have aged really, really well. Um, I mentioned that the second one is not so great. But without the second game, we wouldn't have uh, Symphony of the Night, probably, because um, Symphony of the Night takes um, uh, the second game's, like, open world and just like makes it better, makes it into like what the the newer Castlevania games are all about, which is like a Metroidvania. When you hear Metroidvania, you're not thinking um, level based, like where you go, like Mario, where you're going from one level to the next. You start off with the castle and you're kind of exploring and going to new rooms and then you get teleport rooms and save rooms. Um, but yeah, and that really revolutionized the series. And um, And Alucard is the main character that you play in that, so... That's, I guess, why they they kind of base it's based off of both kind of. And I, you know, I never played in the games where you where Alucard is a playable character, but uh, I was watching some footage, and it looks like he does actually have a sword that kind of like flies around in the air or something. Yeah, and he can turn into like mist, and um, and then there's uh, there's a kind of a sequel to that one, um, Area of Sorrow. And that one's really good too. Um, that was like the uh, probably the first Castlevania I played, and it was on the Game Boy Advance. And hopefully they'll remaster that. Um, and uh, that's like that goes into the future. So that's like kind of like a sci-fi game too. Um, and um, there's also Alucard is in that, and there's Belmont Clan. So that's why like I, y'all y'all were talking about um, you know what happens next. And can you continue the story without the main bad guy dead? And uh, like having played that, I'm like, I'm so interested. There's like a in season three, there's like a brief glimpse at like some futuristic shit. Um, when um, yeah, it's like a one mech of the characters, robot goes yeah, there's like a mech robot when Saint Germain is it has like a dream sequence, <laughs> and to to me that just like blows this whole series wide open. Like I have no idea what could happen next, and I love that. Like I love that. Okay, so maybe Dracula is not the the bad guy, or maybe he some he somehow comes back in some sci fi. You know, they they take his blood and they clone him, or there's you know different sci-fi elements. Uh, like, <laughs> and you don't need, you don't need Trevor, and uh, you know you you can still have Alucard in the future, right? He's like a you know a vampire that's you know can can be in 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 the future, but uh so but you can still have the Belmont clan. So that's why maybe season four, if you know maybe or five we we kind of leave this time behind and go into the far yeah. future i would really like well, to see that we're getting a little ahead but yeah what i <laughs> what i read was or like more than a little ahead but what i what i read was that they're actually planning to um they're they're doing a whole bunch of these from the same producer like there's a devil may cry one um an assassin's creed one and a hyperlight drifter one i think and i think the plan is to have them all be sort of crossovers like you know like a comic wow. book um through the infinite corridor through presumably. the infinite corridor yeah that would be awesome so yeah it could or be pr- or yeah. incredibly or- <laughs> messy <laughs> <laughs> yeah or it could be terrible but yeah i mean um yeah it, it's definitely like yeah they obviously have really ambitious plans for this um but um but yeah is there anything else um aaron that you uh particularly want to highlight as, as stuff you liked 
So much. I mean, I could almost do the entire podcast about things I liked and leave off the things I didn't like. Um, there, there were so many things that I really appreciated. I thought the writing was just subtle and smart in so many places. I love the sort of rounded look we got of, uh, you know, we, we have sort of vampires from every corner of the world. We, well, not every corner, but lots of different corners. Um, we have like, a different takes on religion. We have different takes on philosophy and science. I think the acting is stellar across the board. Um, a particular delight is, is St. Germain. Bill Nye is on my list of people that should be in all the things. Hmm. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that guy and everything he does. Um, and he's a total delight in this. Um, I thought the sequence where he goes into the infinite corridor was mind-blowingly beautiful. Um, so inventive. And I sort of contrast that with some of the disappointments in, in Hollywood sci-fi movies um, recently, you know, the last few years where they just struck me as failures of imagination, you know, where they're portraying things that are meant to be crossroads in time or different planets. And you're just like, this is boring. This is flat. Uh, the level of imagination that's brought to bear in this show, I think, just far surpasses so much of what we've seen on the big screen recently. I mean, I really just could go on and on. There are so many things I liked about it. It isn't perfect, for sure. Um, and there were some storylines I felt could be cut altogether, if not characters that I felt could be cut altogether. Um, I want to give a shout out to the storyline with the lady vampires, because I really liked that. I like um, Carmilla's character quite a bit. Um, not because she's likable, but because hmm. she's interesting and she has, um, she has a clear agenda and she has the, the political chops to move it forward. Um, and, and I like that sort of kind of angry, resentful drive that she has behind it all. But, you know, you've got this, this cabal of ladies who are all very different and have very different approaches, but manage to work together to, to further their ambitions. I really just, I liked it a lot. Yeah. I, I think the weak link in the in the whole thing for me is Hector's storyline followed by Isaac's storyline, um, both of which felt I felt got way more screen time than they actually had something to say. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I, I, I let's come back to that. Oh, let me explain to yeah. So so Carmela is this vampire, and in season two she shows up in Dracula's court and kind of concludes that she should be running the show and schemes to overthrow him. And then in season three, she goes back to her kingdom of Styria, I think, which mm -hmm. is ruled by these, yeah, these four female vampires. Uh, so Carmilla, Lenore, Striga, and Marana. And they were really interesting, uh, just the dynamics and they each kind of have their domain of expertise. And, uh, yeah, and I, I, that was like really, really original and interesting. And, you know, they're all complex characters with different, um, you know, mixes of good and evil in them and stuff. And so all that stuff I thought was, was really, really fascinating. Um, I'll say one of the things I really liked about the show was how much research I got to do afterward, because, mm. um, you know, as I, I sent you guys all this, an email where I said, Oh, you know, like all these vampire names, Carmelo, Lenore, Striga, Marana are all references to folklore or, um, literature and, and so on. And then, um, St. Germain or Saint Germain is a, uh, actual historical figure, and um, there's actually a, an episode I watched of In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy where they talk about <laughs> him. But he was basically this guy, I think, uh, around 1700 or so, where he just – he was incredibly smart and scientific and charming. And he would just sort of bounce around to different courts of Europe, charming everybody. And um, 
and the way that he talked about and he would sort of intimate that he was immortal when he would talk about historical events in so much detail that people thought he must have been there um himself and and people claimed like oh I, when when i was a girl he came and he was to the court and he was the same age he is now and stuff like that so i don't know how how much of that is uh I mean, presumably he was not actually immortal, but I, I don't know how much of that <laughs> is, is, is. He's based Keanu Reeves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's based in actual history or not, but it was it was really interesting that you know yeah that the show is sort of smart and um, you know contains all these references to to things that it makes it it rewards you uh, uh, digging into it. Um, I want to get back to to Blake though too. So Blake, any other uh, any other uh, things you really liked about the show? Yeah, I mean, to reiterate, after the seventh episode of the second season, I thought it should be taught in schools. Like, that's how high on this I was. I thought that I was also thinking that this is just, it felt like the ultimate adaptation to me, where, you know, a lot of the storylines and the dynamics and the character, uh, well, not the characters, but, you know, it, it felt very fresh and like a new take, but it was spiritually um, authentic to the original show. And and the number one compliment that I'll give it um is that it's so ambitious. You know, I think, you know, we're all storytellers, so I think that we appreciate ambitious storytelling. It, you know, takes huge bites. Even the thing that really uh, sort of took it off the rails a bit for me, the, you know, killing of Dracula, and I'd like to talk more about why I think that that's not, you know, just because we lost a big bad that the story lost momentum for me. But that's so, you know, that could have been, they could have strung that along for five seasons. So I, I like really appreciated that they had these characters go on their mission and they, they achieved the mission and the writer or Warren Ellis had to ask what next. So I just really appreciated the show's ambition, even with, uh, you know, the eight additional characters in season three. <laughs> like, uh, as anyone who's read my work knows, I love different POVs. I love the Game of Thrones books. I love how ambitious it is. It didn't, it didn't work for me, but like, I love that they tried it and it's definitely felt more sophisticated and often highly executed than most other things that I see on television or in, in the movies. Yeah. Well, let's, let's just go through it. So in the aftermath of Dracula's death, let's see what happens. So like Trevor and Sypha become roving adventurers and they end up in this town where there's a weird cult that's kind of taken over the local church um alucard is left by himself at dracula's castle and these japanese um siblings come and and stay with alucard and he's going to train them to um kill vampires um hector has been imprisoned by carmilla and um her sister or her i'm not i wasn't clear if they were any of the vampires were siblings or not, but her co-ruler, uh, Lenore has to sort of like charm him and get, has to charm Hector and get him to help them create a new, uh, demon army. Uh, Isaac has been transported, um, uh, to the Middle East, I guess. Um, and he has to make his way back to, um, to Eastern Europe to avenge Dracula and gather a demon army along the way. Uh, Am I missing anyone? Is that all? So that, yeah, I think that's it. So there's basically like those four stories, right? Um, so let's see. So Aaron was saying that she thought that we could do without the Isaac story and the Hector story, did you say? I, yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily, I guess, that I think we could do without them altogether. It's just, um, I think there were various aspects of them that weren't very satisfying and that they got more screen time than narratively made sense to me. Um, Isaac's, some of Isaac's story was some of the more interesting, uh, kind of thoughtful writing. 
um, in some ways, but it just went on for too long. It's basically, I, Isaac is, um, I, I can't remember where he was before he shows up in Tunis. So he's in North Africa. Um, he kills everyone, obviously. He, he's looking for, um, an artifact. He's basically, he's trying to get back to, um, Hector so that he can exact his revenge for Hector's role in Dracula's downfall. Um, but he's essentially kind of, um, blundering along, trying to make his way back for a really, really long time. Um, the, the scenes in which one of his first things that he does is he charters a ship in Tunis. Um, and his interactions with the Caribbean captain, um, I really enjoyed. I liked all of that. And, and I think it was interesting. Um, and I think sort of having this piece in play of Isaac is making his way back to rock your world, Hector, <laughs> you know, take, <laughs> take his, take his revenge on Carmilla, take his revenge on Hector. Um, I like having that piece in play, but I think we spent way more time with it. And I think they just started, end up, ended up, um, giving him things to do that really were irrelevant. And I didn't care about like his <laughs> whole side quest where he has to go in and destroy the evil wizard with the floaty people. I just, as, you know, as visually interesting as the being attacked by hordes of floaty people was, I just, that whole <laughs> series of events didn't need to be there. And then there's Hector, who spends this inordinate amount of time moping, mopily in prison, um, falling for the same ruses exactly as he <laughs> fell for in the previous. And he and knows he, it, too. And he's it's- just so hard to get behind because of this. And so... You know, like I just that whole storyline too. It's it's a piece that perhaps needs to be in play, but we spend way more time with it than I care to. I mean, I I actually really like both those storylines. I agree with you that much of it felt sort of more protracted than it needed to be. But I mean, in in a lot of ways, Isaac is my favorite character in the show. He's and, the most thoughtful, for sure. And because he, yeah, he's like, he's sort of like a bad guy, but he's almost like the most moral in a way. And also he's, his story involves the most sort of philosophical um, aspects. But then the thing with Hector, yes. So so what's going on with Hector is that he's been badly mistreated by Carmilla and he's a prisoner of these vampires. And so Lenore is the sort of diplomat of this, um, of this ruling group of vampires and she has to get him to help them. And, um, and I actually thought that was really interesting, um, that, you know, this idea that he knows that she, that she's manipulating him, but then you see, like, he can't help but be manipulated by her, even (laughs) knowing it. And I feel like that's sort of psychologically realistic in a way. Like, if you're in a really bad situation, I feel like, you know, it's really easy for your, you know, reason to go out the window and you just to, you know, sort of clutch for whatever emotional support you can get. That's sort of why people have Stockholm syndrome, which is sort of what we're looking at here. I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, my, um, my girlfriend, Stephanie was telling me about this. this <laughs> I thought you were going to say she like locked you in a prison uh, <laughs> and that's how you yeah, guys yeah. fell in love. Thanks. Tell us your love story, David. Oh, well, it's a Stockholm syndrome situation. No, no, it's a classic. <laughs> no, classic no, so, so Stockholm she's... syndrome. <laughs> No, she um she she was telling me about this news story she read where there was this guy and he had started up a um a service that would write like letters to lonely men, you know, that were supposedly from beautiful women. Yeah, and, I heard about this. And even after the whole thing was exposed, so many of the men were like, "No, like this woman really <laughs> exists. She really cares for me. I know it. I feel it." You know, and it, it was that, it's that same kind of idea of like, you know, sort of emotional desperation completely overriding the capacity for for reason and skepticism 
Um, well, that's a, that's an interesting point because because I was gonna say maybe this is a backhanded connection, but like my favorite character was or is or one of my favorites is Isaac, and the fact that um he- Hector is such a loser makes Isaac's journey so much less <laughs> impressive because. Like it's like what you're saying. If you're if, if if I was in the POV of a prisoner or a lonely guy receiving letters, I would be curious. Oh, is this going to be a love connection? But once I know as the audience that it's actually just a service, I like I'm not that interested anymore because I know it's kind of a scam. Just like I feel like I know it's not like Isaac is going to destroy, topple some big important thing. He's like going to kill this guy who should probably be put out of his misery. So it really made <laughs> his storyline much less interesting to me. Yeah, I agree with Blake. The it, it it almost like slows the pacing down in yeah. a already slow because you know it's inevitable. E- even Hector knows it's inevitable, and yet that's the whole yes. There's thing no suspense throughout to it. the whole season. That's all we're seeing from Hector and Carmilla and Lenore's story. It's just it's basic. There's a little bit of them talking about mercenaries and hiring mercenaries, but like ninety five percent of it is Hector in a cell. Um, getting a book or getting uh, an apple or, you know, all these things where you know where it's heading. And it's just, I mean, let's, let's wrap this up. We only need an episode of this, but, but I like, I don't know. I, I found Isaac's story more interesting, maybe just because it's more episodic. It's just like one adventure to the next. All right. He's on a boat. All right, he's fighting a blob of people floating in the sky, you know, or <laughs> so he's getting weird. a mirror. <laughs> well, actually, actually, before we move on too much from from Lenore and Hector, I just want to note that I thought that her approach is actually really interesting because everything she, you know, it's like she's manipulating him, but everything she says is pretty much legit, right? She says like, "We just want you to do for us what you were doing for Dracula." And Dracula was crazy, and we're better than he is. So why won't you do the same thing for us that you're doing for him? <laughs> and also, like, all my sisters want to do horrible things to you, and I'm going to treat you well. And granted, um, you know, it's because I want something from you. Let's be honest about that. But I am going to treat you well, and they won't. So aren't you better off making a deal with me than whatever the alternative is? Like, everything she says is really, like, smart and honest in a way up until the end. It's... Mostly true, although I think, you know, making someone your sex slave probably doesn't fall in squarely into the realm of I'm going to treat you well. <laughs> right. Well, it's more like she even says, <laughs> it's like she's, she makes him her pet. It's like a pet versus a partner. Like, uh, you know, I take care of my pet really well, but my wife would not want to be treated like a pet. She wants to be like an equal partner in the relationship and decision making and like actually have autonomy in her life. <laughs> Which, which Hector doesn't. Well, no, but th- then you're getting the, the the slave part. Then you're getting into the finale, which I said okay, like I have I mean, serious issues with. Um, and yeah, I didn't I didn't like true. the way pretty much any of these stories ended in the finale, but most of them I liked pretty well up until then. Well, b- before yeah. we get to that, can I can I ask you because you guys uh, you know uh, were higher on the third season than I was, and you, you had mentioned we were discussing like maybe it was because the big bad died and or you know and but a, a lot of good shows and good books and series have you know the big bad die and someone else takes over but but what i what to to like backtrack a bit what i love so much about the show in general and the first season and i think i remarked on the last episode we did was that the first episode of the series was actually basically just giving you reasons to be sympathetic for dracula you know that his the love of his life was killed and so i knew where he was coming from the whole time i didn't agree with his desire to kill humanity but i understood where he was coming from what in your opinion was like 
what what is Carmilla's goal? What makes it interesting? What does she actually want? And and I sort of thinking like so to me it was not so much that there was a new big bad. It was more I just felt so much more sympathetic to the previous big bad's um, struggle, or at least that I found that dynamic more interesting back and forth. So what did you guys feel like Carmilla wanted yeah. and the, and well, the rest well, of the team? Well, let's let's just lay that out. Yeah. So so in season one, Dracula or season one and two, I guess Dracula's agenda is to wipe out humanity because they killed his human wife, and he feels that humanity has proven right. it's not worthy to exist anymore. And then in season three, Carmilla's goal is to establish a sort of like like human farm within yeah. Eastern Europe, where the vampires will just be able to feed off of them. Um, you know, with impunity and uh, resist, repel uh, incursions from outside. And so I guess I see what you're saying there, Blake, that um, Carmilla's agenda is just kind of like evil and doesn't like, yeah, hers, hers just feels branding. like, but, yeah, it's like that bad guy yeah. for the sake of bad guy thing. I felt like I see, I don't really agree. And I, and I think that the, the interesting part um, perhaps of, Carmilla's agenda is in juxtaposing it with Dracula's because yes, okay, on the surface, Dracula's agenda is humanity has killed his wife and therefore proven that they're a bunch of assholes and they all need to die. But actually, it's not just that. He also thinks vampires are a bunch of assholes and they all need to die. So the reason that Carmilla and the other vampires turn against him is they realize pretty quickly that if his plan is executed in the way that he envisages it, not only will humanity be wiped out, but the vampires will all starve to death. Basically, Mm -hmm. Dracula's agenda is, I'm sick of all of you. I'm sick of myself. We need to hit the reset button on this whole earth thing. And he just wants, you know, he just wants to wipe them all out equally. Um, And he's exhausted. And it's, you know, as Alucard says, the, the world's longest suicide note. And he just wants to take them all with him because nobody deserves to be around, except for maybe Isaac. And this goes back to, I can't remember who said it, but that he's maybe the most moral character. He's at least got a, a code that, while you might disagree with it, is ha- has a recognizable um, rubric of, of what's right and what's wrong. So that's Dracula's agenda. Carmilla's agenda is that all of this savagery is just men being men and crazy men at that. And I, I love that she part wants, about her. It, me too. And she wants something much more pragmatic and limited, which is I'm obviously the superior species. Uh, there's no need for my food to be mistreated, but it's still my food. So this is the best way for me to get my food. And so if you look at these two, and, and so her plan, if taken f- to fruition, really only affects a very limited number of people living around her kingdom of Styria, this, this region of Austria. So from a philosophical standpoint, which is the greater evil, to me is a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. Because while Dracula's plan involves genocide uh, of, on, uh, on a double scale, basically, of, of his race and of the human race, um, his, <laughs> kind of reason for doing it has a certain moral clarity to it, which is why Isaac is on board with it. Mm -hmm. Whereas Carmilla's is just the absolute opposite of that. And so this is a very long way of saying, I think what's interesting is, is to put these two in discussion to get this kind of dialectical tension between them. Well, that's why I think she becomes instantly less interesting as soon as Dracula is out of the picture. Right. Um, it, it just becomes logic and I, I like it, you know, that it's a logical plan. Um, but my favorite part of her is when she's saying, 
this is a crazy old man doing crazy old man things that doesn't make any sense. And she's like the only one bringing that up. Or and she's like, I am sick ones. to death of crazy old men ruining everything for everybody else, which I yeah. feel you, sister. I really do. <laughs> I, I love that. But then that's kind of gone uh, in the third season. And it's just, it's so much more focused on her being a dick to Hector for very confusing or no reason other than she's like a mustache twirling. I totally understand that perspective, but I think it goes back to what I was saying about the narrative being overstuffed and why I got frustrated with too much of, of, of Hector in particular. Um, and also Alucard's storyline spun its wheels um, a little bit for me. I think they could have done better things with that character and we haven't really touched on that, but, um, but I think two questions for me. One, is Dracula really out of the picture? Because the scene um, toward the end of season three in which they're opening the infinite corridor, we see Dracula in hell um, with his wife, Lisa, which just in brackets, why is she in hell? What's she doing? Yeah. Anyways, whatever. <laughs> That's fine. They seem to be having a heart to heart in which he explains how he was going to kill everybody, including their son, and she's fine with it. Um, <laughs> they're having Maybe that's why she's in hell. Anyway, the point is they can use the infinite corridor theoretically to reach him. And in fact, he almost reaches out through the infinite corridor. So the question is, is there a um, a way that Dracula gets reinvolved in the narrative? But also Dracula might be gone, but his agenda isn't gone because Isaac still fully intends to put it into motion. That's true. But yeah, 100% Dracula is coming back in season four or five or something. Like, uh, yeah, I wouldn't even... I wouldn't have any doubt about that. I mean, and possibly would... in a protagonistic role, right? <laughs> it's uh, possible. Hey, area of sorrow. That's kind of the. <laughs> so wait, so let me game. let me ask you guys. Since since uh, you know, you're describing, I think correctly, especially compared to Dracula's agenda, you're describing Carmilla's agenda as sort of pragmatic, uh, maybe a very much more efficient mechanism to do evilish things, or or. What I, what I want to ask is, what, what, how is that different than the status quo in your understanding of the show? How difficult is it, is it for vampires to feast on humans and to carry out with their ordinary business? Well, I think that's, it's like there's, there's animals everywhere, right? And then there's cows that are like kept in cages, right? So I think that's... It's hunting you know, versus ranching. Yeah, so I think they just well, want to make a ranch, right? Well, I, think, I think one of the interesting sort of world building things is that only humans can create, can be um, forge masters, to, are they called? Can, can create yes, these right. demon armies. And so uh, I would imagine maybe that it's not that common for humans to be working for vampires and, and Dracula was maybe kind of, you know, uh, innovative. He's onto or, something there. Yeah. You know, I had a question actually about the Forge Masters because I think you guys have more experience with this stuff than I do. Um, for me, the, the concept of the Forge Master was completely fresh and I really liked it. Um, you know, the concept of, of, uh, spirits or demons taking over the bodies of the dead is, is obviously not new at all. But the idea that a mortal, um, working in, with some kind of arcane technique, which they suggest is entirely learned, um, there's nothing innate about it. It's a learned skill. Uh, but that only humans, for whatever reason, can execute. Um, the f whole Forge Master concept, oh, and, and then by the way, which is an important piece, that the, the demons resulting from that, the night creatures resulting from that process are, um, immutably loyal to 
the forge master. Um, that all seemed very fresh to me and I hadn't encountered it before. So I wanted to ask whether you guys had seen something similar. And then I also had a question around, I'm a little bit confused about how Hector comes into it. Cause it seems like he's just born knowing how to do it. Which, yeah. yeah. So, so where, Zach, where he you, comes into that, I don't do care. Do you know anything about the like Castlevania? Cause I, I just read like the list of character Castlevania characters on Wikipedia and all the stuff seems to predate the, um, the, the animated series or, or most of the, the stuff with he- like Hector and Isaac anyway, are characters from the video games. Uh, so I don't recall the Forge Masters or what they do. And I just, I really like the idea of Forge Masters, but I have like so many questions like about yeah. the Forge Masters and like what, what's keeping them from just any Forge Master automatically creating an army? Like what's the power level? What's the balance? <laughs> it just, it's very confusing. Like sometimes, in season two, it seemed like they were taking time, or at least yeah, Hector agreed. was, where they would take time to create these, uh, like an image of a demon, you know, like they're re- actually forging the demon. And then um, Isaac is like just stabbing them people's into throats existence. and then, yeah, stabbing them into existence and that, and he, it doesn't seem to wind him. Um, so it's <laughs> like, well, how is, how is he like, how does any vampire have like agency over <laughs> any of the forge masters? They seem completely overpowering or overpowered in this like universe. But anyway, I mean, I really like them conceptually. I just, I'm constantly confused by, I'm like, no, that's a, well, yeah, the mechanics. How can, that, how can you just keep doing that? I, I, I have the, my, my imp- I mean, I don't, I don't know, but my impression is that Isaac has achieved a level of forge mastery unprecedented probably in this world that he's you know such an exceptional individual of such exceptional um discipline that you know the the kind of stuff he's doing in season three has probably not been done before that's sort of how i imagine it anyway gotcha that makes sense but it it could it could have been explained because that is indeed i i completely agree with you zach one of the 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 big sort of whiplash moments is in season two hector is he's he's like a blacksmith he takes his time over it. He's meticulously banging things into place. It's a long process, which appears to require a MacGuffin of some kind, um, yeah. because he has a MacGuffin as a child. Um, I can't remember what it is, but there's like a, a tool that he uses or a, I don't know. He has some sort of a, coin, doesn't he? I was going to say a lucky silver dollar. I don't know what it is um, <laughs> that, that allows him to be a, a magic child. But then <laughs> Hector, or sorry, Isaac just seems to be able to just stab anyone and they're instantly a night creature. Um, And I'm not clear if he's just got a magic knife or is that just Isaac being awesome? That that's not really explained. And I'm, I'm prepared to suspend my disbelief as long as it makes sense within the world. But I do, I do think that they could flesh that out in a way that makes a little bit more sense. Can I just say like the, the thing that sticks out in my mind most Thinking back on this show is this scene where Isaac questions one of the night creatures he's created. Uh, it's called fly in the subtitles. It's called fly eyes. I mean, it looks like it has the head of a fly and it's, it tells him that he's like, how did you, cause, cause somehow the souls that end up in hell get transmuted or, you know, uh, sort of placed into these, these night creatures. And he says, do you remember anything of your former life or how you ended up in hell? And the the monster says, oh, well, I was a philosopher in Athens. 
and sort of describes this whole thing. And just that, that scene is like the thing from the show, as I said, that sticks out the most for me. I just found it's like so like creepy and interesting and, um, original. Um, I want to get Blake back in here. Did that, did that stick out to you at all? Um, yeah, it did, but I, I have a proposal to the rest of the crew. I'm going to offer an opportunity. So I think that we should do a fan fiction season three, episode zero, or an additional episode of season two. And we could talk about, um, you know, the unique properties of Forge Masters, their limitations, where these souls come from. And we can also tackle what I really want to tackle, which is half of the episode is a backstory of Carmilla. We show that she grew up in a really poor family. Her father was feeble. She didn't have a mother. Uh, the father was unable to hunt. So her and her sister almost starved. Her sister died. And now we understand why it's so important to her that she, you know, have access to humans so that she could feed her species and make sure that never happens to anyone else, regardless of your strengths or all that. And now I actually kind of, uh, I'm behind her, or at least I'm behind her when she has her seats. <laughs> You know, I, I, I applaud this uh, project and I'm totally behind it, but I have a different pitch for Carmela's backstory. I, right. I, I think we, we had the, the kicked dog, uh, kids twice already in, in Isaac and Hector, both of them literally kicked around as children. Um, and they took their hard life lessons, which I think we spent more time with than was necessary, just in parentheses. For Carmela, I think. I would have liked to see more what it was like for her right after she turned. And she talks about it a little bit. She talks about the fact that she was turned. She doesn't say how long ago, really, um, by some nasty old man. Um, and that she had to sort of sit and seethe with rage while he ruined everything around her. And she talks about it a little bit. But I think that as a moment that shapes your worldview about mm -hmm. knowing what it's like to be powerless, um, knowing what it's like to be at the whims of somebody who has no vision, who isn't as smart as you, but, you know, everybody kowtows to anyway. I would have liked to see more of her, of her backstory. I don't know why we have all this time with, with, for example, Hector's backstory when he turns out to be so two-dimensional so far. She's far more interesting. Her sisters are all far more interesting. I'd like to know more about what shaped their worldviews. And she seems to have a ready-made sort of... um piece of backstory that could be fleshed out into something that's really interesting that made her the political animal she is. Because one of the things I loved about her, the minute she shows up in season two, she does a total mic drop in the middle of the court. She basically <laughs> walks up and is like, hey, Dracula, just a question from the peeps. Like, why did you not turn your wife into a vampire? Because all of this would have been avoided. Ex examines fingernails. Take your time, sir. You know, she and she does this on purpose. She knows it's inflammatory. And she's doing it precisely because it's inflammatory. She, she upends the table from the minute she's in the room, which is a dangerous but smart strategy. I would have, I would just like to spend more time in her head. I think there's a lot more there. Completely agree. I would be, I would be happy to co-author that as well. Uh, something <laughs> to just get more into her as a character. Cause even in the situation you described, you know, or you describe her as a political animal, which I think is a great description and the coolest most fascinating thing about most political animals is that they think that they're the good guys in their head and that they have the reason. So, you know, I, I really dislike and disagree with a lot of what Trump does, but at least he thinks he's making America great again, or at least he tells people that. What is Carmilla telling people? Because when Dracula was there, she was telling people she was saving them from this lunatic. But then after that, I don't know. Like, I'd like to at least see what she thinks she's doing that's so good and, and how she's justified, even if we might disagree as viewers. But because she is, she, well, she, all the kernels feel like they're there. 
Well, actually, that brings up another thing I wanted to raise, which is that as far as I can tell, every character in the show thinks that God is on their side. Um, so like Isaac says, through my hands, God lifts the damned from hell in his mercy to enact their penance on earth as my soldiers. And the creepy cultist leader, Sala, says, God created everything. God created hell. If God is perfect, then causing Lucifer to go down to hell is his plan. The wisdom of hell and its night creatures is God's wisdom. And so, I mean, last time we talked... Hard to argue with that. You were saying (laughs) that the show was sort of theologically interesting. And I think that's one of the things that is, is interesting is that the bad guys all think, like both the good guys and the bad guys, as far as I can remember, all think that God... That there is God is on their side. And watching Isaac reconcile Sufi Islam with what he's doing is interesting. Um, I would like them to go further, but I understand why they don't. I think if, if God is omnipotent, then he's just on everyone's side, right? Like you could just always justify anything that you do as like, you know, I'm doing it. Do you think, do you think Trevor feels like God is on his side? Or Alucard? Oh, yeah. God sure. invented beer, or for he's. On. I don't, I don't know. Actually, I'm 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 not sure in their worldview that maybe God's like a more you know more gray, not fully in control thing. But but what uh, Dave was saying was like if if God created hell, then you know hell's godly, right? So I think like so all the hell creatures are are God's creatures doing God's work, right? So there's, like, I- any villain can just, like, claim that, right? Yeah, Canon I mean, does. I, I mean, feel that's like, what happened like in Trevor, history, right? I feel yeah. like Trevor and Alucard maybe f- don't feel that God has been particularly kind to them, but I don't think either of them feels that they're in opposition to God or that, you know, I mean, they're both sort of killing demon monsters, right? So... No, yeah, no, I sort of think that both of them think that God doesn't care about them at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, they're not in opposition to God, but I don't think that they are feeling like they're necessarily on the side of the angels either. Yeah, I think in in that worldview is that God's not in control, God is a peace that's fighting against the the devil, right? And it's just a, it's a war where it's not, uh, you know, Om, uh, one omnipotent being controlling both sides. It's like a, a you know, one Maybe, being yeah. versus another. And then they're just siding with themselves, which just happens to be, we don't want demons killing human beings. Or that God is indifferent. God has yeah, created yeah, 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 all yeah. of this and he's like, good, I'm out. It's another time. You guys have, you guys have a good, good day. See ya. Seven days and see ya. Let me know who wins. But that's just sort of, we have to infer that, right? Because neither Trevor nor Alucard ever mentioned God that I can think of. I don't, I mean, I I feel like Trevor does kind of in passing, but he doesn't strike me as the type of character. He's not a character that I want a a big theological speech from. It would make, it would make more sense from Alucard, but I I like Trevor's very uh, pedestrian approach to life. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I think it's interesting how much, you know, how long we've talked about the show without mentioning Trevor or um, <laughs> or Alucard? Well, that's or, what I was saying. <laughs> or Saifa. La- Last episode is they like they just. I feel like they're underdeveloped. Like tra- I want Trevor. Here, I, I, want- I could sum it up. Let me. Uh, these are not the words of Blake J. Harris. These are the words of Trevor. Trevor, season three, episode six. Did we fall out of our story into someone else's story? 
The answer is yes. <laughs> you guys were not like the main characters in the season at all. And I think that the three of them are the most interesting characters in the show. I think that for me, um, I, I am okay with it's, it's not uncommon for, for your hero to be one of the, the least, um, developed in that sense, uh, in a story like this. I'm, I'm kind of okay with that provided that they have a role. I think they did suffer from moments where they didn't seem to be moving the narrative forward very much. I think the most underdeveloped for me in terms of, not that he's underdeveloped per se, but that there's so much potential there is, is Alucard. I, I really wanted to spend more time with him coming to grips with the like, what am I now? Who am I now? And it's all implicit in his storyline, but instead we spend a bunch of time having him talk to dolls and hang out with the Japanese siblings, which culminates in the, in the worst possible it's way. I, we didn't even talk about his plot in the third season and how bad and how it does nothing until the very end. And what happens in the end is stupid and bad. It's like, so <laughs> stupid and so bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, well, I, well, why don't we just talk about it now? Yes. Yeah, so, um, so 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 Alucard, yeah, like I said, he um these two Japanese siblings come and they want him to teach them to um kill vampires. And uh, you know, so he does. And the and then at the end, I feel like kind of stupid even saying this, but so they like <laughs> like seduce. They they like seduce. seduce together, they like crawl into bed with him. And uh, they're going to have a threesome, but then it turns out that they're planning to murder him, and they're planning to no, murder him. No, but first they have the threesome. Yeah, that is true. Let's they let's did give him the reward. They did give him the reward. They they wait until after <laughs> orgasm to you know to to, to to betray him, which is one of the many many questions I have. Well, with <laughs> and same thing with Hector and Lenore. It's like ah, like why is sex in this? Okay, show? but that part I understand. All right, well wait, let's let's stick with the this yeah. with Alucard for a second. So so yeah, they're and they're planning to murder him, but they don't know that he has this magic flying sword that he's able to extricate himself with, from the situation with. But so, um, and, and when that whole thing happened, I just thought it was some sort of like magical illusion or something. Cause it was so <laughs> like completely out of left field to me. And so inconsistent with the characters as they'd been developed in my mind. And so like thinking back, I can see like, well, they, they like asked, they wanted him to move the castle and he wouldn't, <laughs> and they wanted him to, to get into his vault and he wouldn't or something, but there was like so little foreshadowing. It just felt so weird and just completely like fell. And and then like retroactively kind of ruins that whole storyline. Cause you're like, why did we spend so much time with these characters? If they were just going to die acting in such an uncharacteristic way, like, yeah, the whole thing is like so weird. Yeah. It's all, all before that, it's like episode after episode of them frolicking. Like they're fro- it's like montages of them frolicking, training, learning things, hugging each other, and then this uh. completely out of left field. The the justification for them turning on Alucard is paper thin. The fact that you know, generally speaking, can we just avoid the sibling orgies? Like, <laughs> if, did they have to be brother and sister? It would have made a big difference to me if I wasn't watching brother and sister have sex together because I just like I am so over the the incest orgies in fantasy. It's just enough already. But <laughs> just you know, in general, I can't get behind incest orgies. I, I just like I, it's just a general <laughs> thing. But so it's, and it, so that whole thing is cringe inducing. 
But well, then but- the icing on the cake is that it's how it's spliced in with the other scenes at the same time. Because while this is taking place, we're cutting back and forth between Alucard uh, having the incest orgy and Hector being, well, Hector having sex with Lenore um, and on the cusp of being tricked by Lenore and two battle scenes. There's Isaac and the floaty people. And then there's uh, another, so it's climax all around, right? And then yeah. there's, there's the, the final battle between um, Trevor and Sypha and the, the demons while they try to open the, the infinite quarter. So this is all splicing back and forth. And first of all, I am so over this as a device. On the left side of the screen, someone's having sex. And on the right side of the screen, <laughs> there's violence. It's just like, okay, phew, this is so old. But if you're going to do that, you literally have the same thing happening to Hector that's happening to Alucard it's at the same paste. time. And and so it completely drains any – to the degree it would have been effective before, it's now completely stolen its own thunder by happening in stereo. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me why this show is um, – like, why are these the moments of sex that it – decides to depict, you know, we, we know like, and it goes like full hentai. Yeah. Like, you know what? We know that, uh, Trevor and Sypha are like in a loving relationship. Um, and that Dracula and Lisa were, and you know, it's, it's interesting to me that that's the, the gratuitous hentai that we see is like, when sex is being used as coercion or manipulation. Absolutely. It feels super problematic and it's super cringy to watch. I was just like, oh, like, yeah, for the shit. Someone edit all that shit out and just show me the action because like Trevor and Sypha, while they're, their romance is skipped entirely. It's, it's skipped. And I really want to see more of, of couples like just together like that in genre storytelling. I like, I want to see that it's great representation. Like we need more stories that are just like, Hey, here's a absolute unit. They're together, you know? And, and what you see when they're fi- it's, it's underdeveloped in the story or in the plot and in the, in the dialogue and all that, but in the action, the fight scene, like they're the way they fight together, the way they, they have chemistry and they have choreography and it's really cool to watch. So at least I can give it. I can give that to their relationship. Let, let but. me just say quickly on the um, Hector Lenore thing. I just hated that there's this magic ring that comes out of nowhere that we never heard yeah. before, and I felt like it was totally unnecessary anyway. Like at that point, I thought that he would have done whatever she wanted, <laughs> even without the magic exactly. ring. Exactly. So well, no, she. It, it was foreshadowed like for fifteen seconds. <laughs> in a couple of earlier episodes, they he they did point out to the ring, like, oh, what's that ring? It's vampire blood and iron or something, right? I, I thought it was, no, it was the same episode. Magical properties, though, I right? just remember her her saying, like, oh, this is a ring that my sisters and I have. Or so. I don't remember anything about, like, yeah. anything beyond that. I mean, maybe It's like hanging something. a lantern, but not lighting it. <laughs> it's yeah. just... It's, but, but to it's, go back... Wait, wait, let me just let me just say, I mean, but I just think you should never have, like, characters doing something because they're magically compelled to when characterization would do the job just as well. You know, like, it's just so much less interesting. Yeah, um, it's, it's completely a cheat. I do want to get Blake back in here. Blake, do you have anything you want to 
So oh yeah, I feel like this is uh, maybe an unpopular take, but I saw um, Taka and Sumi. I thought, I mean, I thought that was overall pretty stupid because not, not that storyline was really necessary to the story. But I sort of saw their, you know, if you look at uh, the vampires versus humans and one race trying to, uh, the vampires trying to like, enslave the humans, I saw Taka and Sumi as a commentary on the excesses of social justice movements. Um, and th- that was, I thought that they, you know, they had been treated well, but their justification was that they had been treated poorly in the past and that they were going to be betrayed. So there was nothing that could be done. I just, to like, they're, them. they're, 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 their plan didn't make any like he's te- like he's in the process of teaching them how to fight and he's teaching them magic and stuff like why this moment to kill him like what does that even gain you even if they're cynically exploiting him like it just the whole thing made no sense to me at all. I, I felt like they're really pushing to get Alucard into that brooding um, protagonist and it's weird because we he he's a teenager right and so we know he hasn't had a whole lot of experiences. We know his mother was killed. Um, we know he had to kill his father, but it's like there, it, it feels very plot like, Oh, I just need to have him brood more. I need to have, I need to make him do something unheroic. Well, <laughs> I think know? it was also, I mean, it was meant like to be a reminder that he's half vampire, right? I think you, you kind of get lost. That kind of gets lost. Yeah. I think that's true, and I think, Zach, what you're saying is true, and I don't have a problem with that. I just think it was poorly executed. I think it's actually what they seem to be doing. And so, in the final scene that we have of Alucard, he's mounted their skeletons, their bodies on pikes outside the castle, just like dear old dad used to do. Um, And so, I think what's interesting is the degree to which they're hinting that, you know, his father, for for whom he had really very little sympathy by the end. He couldn't really, um, he couldn't really understand how his father could put something so evil into motion. You kind of see where he's already taken the first steps along that path and seeing how Dracula arrived at a place where humanity was irredeemable. Because I think one of the things that was implied, so in, in that very first scene of the, of the series is Lisa walking between these skulls mounted on pikes outside of Dracula's castle. And she says something to the effect of, you know, nice heads. I don't remember what she says, but he says, I don't do that anymore. That's, that's in the past. I don't do that anymore. And the impression that I had was that the killing of Lisa isn't so much a one-off event that enrages him so much, although it is that for him, it's also the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm -hmm. And you see that a bit echoed in, in Isaac's story that, one betrayal hurts, but it's the cumulative effect of all of these betrayals over time that just leads to a point where you think humanity is irredeemable. And I think what's interesting is they seem to be setting Alucard on that path, that he starts out as a hero and a, and a good man and somebody who sees the evil his father is doing and is repelled by that. And yet, by the end of season three, he's a little bit closer to understanding maybe how his father arrived at that place and how many betrayals it might've taken for him to get there. No, I, I definitely agree that there, they seem to be setting it up that Alucard's going to become a villain down the line, but it just doesn't seem like, 
But the execution was but terrible. The execution's right. not good. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I feel like, you know, like I said in season one, it's just like hitting you over the head with like, oh, this church is bad and these religious leaders are bad. And I felt like kind of this, I felt kind of the same way at the end of season three, where I felt like it was just hitting you over the head with like, this is a dark show. And man, this thing's so dark <laughs> at the end. But it was like, it didn't make sense. It was like, I don't mind it being dark, but it just didn't make sense how it got. It was, you know, it was like it just fell off a cliff into the Mariana Trench level it, of dark. It, from, it from became like, gratuitous. And and so it's like that, yeah. It's like that with, yeah, with Hector becoming a slave and with Alucard being betrayed and um and also with the judge turning out to be a serial killer, which was like yeah, uh, also what? another total misstep. <laughs> as soon as he told that little kid to to get yeah. some apples, I was yeah. like, yo, this this is not. Maybe he has a dog chained up on that's going to come out of nowhere and kill this kid. And then I was like, wait, where's the payoff? When is this going to pay off? Because there's like three episodes after that happens, and I was still like, they they hung a lantern on that so much that I, I, I towards the end I was like, oh, this guy's dead, and it's still that we never saw that, and then finally, you know, you you see that the the outcome, but only after the judge dies. That that whole turn was so unnecessary, and I think it's such a common mistake in shows like this. And I'll point to two concrete examples. One is Game of Thrones, obviously, and two is The Walking Dead, where they started off being really interesting and thoughtful. And they just they had to out dark themselves with every season and they reached points of absurdity, where it was just pure, (laughs) pure sadism across the board. (laughs) And just like just to a degree that was just not necessary and became almost comical. And and I think I, I would really hope that they don't do that because like that whole storyline with the judge being evil was totally unnecessary. It didn't need to be there. Um, and in its place, I would have liked to see, to go back to, to what Zach was saying, I would have liked to see something a little bit happier. So why is it that we have this starting out very antagonistic relationship between Sypha and Trevor in season one? And then in season two, um, they kind of, reconcile a little bit and then suddenly bang in season three they're lovers we skipped the whole thing of their courting we skipped the whole thing of their falling in love there's no sex there's no romance there's nothing they're just a couple it is hand wave i love that i love that. i thought that was just, so elegant you can use that to counterbalance some of the dark to give some yeah, some worldviews that I, don't I, suck I just have a problem that that that's what they show it's like you're gonna show the most fucked up type of relationship versus what you have right here. And you're just going to skip over that. Every time we see them together, it's like, it's, it's after the fact or, you know, like, I want like what you were saying, you loved their relationship or, or you like skipped to it or maybe I'm just like a big, uh, fan of privacy. (laughs) I feel like they deserve the privacy. (laughs) Correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that we found out that they were lovers was she made a comment about how she had cold feet. And then he sort of makes an innuendo like, I know all, or you would know. All, she says you know all about my cold feet, or he does, and then you're like, "Oh, is that? Do they have a sexual relationship?" And then it kind of goes from there, but they never actually say like, "I love you," or "I love banging you," or we see that. Like, I felt, like, <laughs> I felt like it was uh, respectful. I don't know, um, but I, 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 I totally like, agree, and I'm fine with that. But that's all they did. So, but but I have a question. Like everything you guys are saying is the stuff that really bothered me for season three. So, what is it that you guys liked? Like, I felt like, like. I liked your two example, your two concrete examples, Aaron, from Game of Thrones and Walking Dead, where it just felt like it went from interesting storylines and interesting characters to just shock value, and or you said, you know, um, 
gratuitousness, I think. Like, that was what season three felt like to me. And I also felt like the sex, like, we didn't need sex scenes between Trevor and Saifa because they actually had interesting things to talk about and to do. And the sex scenes throughout the rest of the show, or towards the latter half, were because were, it was all just like filler, like, in place of more interesting storytelling. But no, when you're talking about like the sex, the sex scenes were just like the end of the that's second true. to last episode and the last episode that I remember, right? So that's why I, was, I liked it up until that point. And then I, I, I felt like it really kind of like went off the rails at that point. But like, I just liked the character so much. I thought all the, yeah, like I said, like the female vampires, I thought were all really original and interesting characters. And like Isaac, I really, so I guess it's basically like, I like the characters is my, Short that's answer good. to that question. And, and I did too. And, and I, I, I like, like St. Germain and, and St. <laughs> Germain's plot too. St. Germain was awesome. Sala was so deliciously creepy with this whispery little voice. Um, I just, I, there were, there were lots of things I liked and I, I, I echo Dave, like it really just the wheels fell off so much in that last episode. And it's such a pity, but to, to go back to what you're saying, Blake, I don't, like, I don't disagree. I don't have any problem with not showing the romance. It's just that the decision to do that coupled with the decision to show all the darkest aspects of sexual intimacy, you kind of, you don't want to do both. Like, that makes if, sense. if you're going to, if you're going to show all the dark side, then you need to show the light side. If you're going to skip it, then you need to skip it. Yeah. And I, I really liked the relationship in season three between Trevor and Saifa, whereas I felt like I, I found Trevor pretty annoying, you know, in the first season where I, he's like a standard, like brooding anime yeah. teenage boy kind of. And then, but then like once he was in a relationship with Saifa, like he's kind of dour, but then she's kind of like enthusiastic and it made kind of a, for a funny um, juxtaposition and a, like a funny dynamic. So like once they were in a relationship together, I liked Trevor a lot more. And a very realistic couples dynamic too, where they're, you know, constantly taking the piss out of each other. And it's like, it's not completely lovey-dovey either. You know, they, they are fully aware of each other's foibles and sometimes they're annoyed by them and sometimes they find them endearing and it's just, it's believable. I'm, I'm also a sucker for like satanic cults, like rising a, uh, raising a, a dead demon. Uh, I mean, I just, I love that. So. Yeah, and I was thinking, like, you know, when San Germain showed up, I was like, this guy is so much more. I, I didn't know at the time that he was a historical figure, and I was like, this guy is just so much more interesting than a character you you would usually see in a animated thing, you know? Like, yeah. so, yeah. So I, I guess overall, yeah, my I hadn't really thought about it in these terms until you said that, Blake. But I think like in season three, I just I loved the characters, and the plot was sort of like okay, you know, maybe needed a different plot with, but the you know with these characters. Let me let me ask you guys. Um, I, I get everything you're saying, and to me, it was it was still enjoyable. Like it, I remember thinking, like it it felt like there's between a podcast you listen to where it's just people talking that are maybe aren't even saying anything, but it's just like hanging out with friends versus a podcast where they're actually telling like you know a murder mystery story, and you actually every you know sentence matters. And and I like both kinds of podcasts, but like I, I can't say that I knew what the ending was going to be, but I felt like. You're, you know, you guys said like the wheels kind of fell off at the end of the, at the in the last episode, and I feel like that was an inevitable outcome for an empty calorie storyline throughout. So I'm kind of just curious, what were you guys hoping would happen or thinking might happen in the finale that didn't happen? Well, from my perspective, I think the the problem 
is if they wanted to go with um, a betrayal, you know, betrayal of Alucard storyline, they needed to set up the pieces better than they did. Um, and they needed to find another way for that betrayal to take place. The motivations needed to be clearer. And the the manner in which the betrayal took place could have not involved incest. I, I don't think it's a big <laughs> ask. I just that so that would have made a big difference for me. Um, I also, you know, I would have liked to see Isaac's story move a little bit faster. So I, I think that the whole side quest with the floaty people could have been replaced with him actually showing up in Styria and creating some genuine suspense around that storyline. Yeah. Um, that would have been a good way, by the way, to trigger perhaps Hector's final um, decision to stop prevaricating and throw his lot in with, with the love of his life, Lenore, um, or, or whatever. <laughs> like that, They could have handled that a lot differently while still being true to the, the skeleton of what, of what they had there. Yeah, I mean, like, I would have been totally satisfied with this season if there had been no magic ring with Hector. It had just been character-based, a character-based arc. Uh, if uh, there, the judge hadn't been a serial killer. Uh, <laughs> and if um, Isaac's, the climax of Isaac's story involved his character somehow. Because it's, it's just like this, it's like this awesome action set piece. But it's not related to his character at all that I, I can see. And it seems like his whole journey was sort of philosophical. And he's like you know, am I on the right path? Like, is, you know, and, and it just seems like the climax of that story in the season should have involved his, his character making a decision or making some sort of reversal or, yeah, or being reunited with the characters we already know, or like whatever, you know, like, um, and then with Alucard's story, if, yeah, if I don't even know, like in retrospect, that was never going anywhere, but <laughs> if, if, if it had just like, you know, if, if like nothing had really happened, I would have been totally fine with that. Like, if, if, you know, like, if it just hadn't gotten bad at the end, you know what could have been awesome. I, I just thought of like in, if instead of being betrayed by Tak and Sumi, he decides they're ready and they go out and they waste some vampires, and then Alucard is like, "Wait," because he had this moment in season two where they're in the library and he's looking at all the skulls of vampires, and he mentions he's that he finds that disturbing that he's looking at right. the skulls of his people. Uh, Wouldn't it have been interesting if he then, you know, he's like totally behind this and let's go waste some vampires. And then they go and do that. And he's like, actually, you know, are, are they evil just because they're vampires and, and has, you know, have that more interesting discussion. Like I'm half vampire and I'm not evil. So is it possible that not all vampires are evil and what have I done and have a sort of a, a crisis collapse there. That would have been interesting. That's a great idea. Yeah, it's really cool. I can I can like see it in my head, like some some cool vampires just hanging out, being like I don't know <laughs> vegan vampires or something, and then they just kill them. And he's like, "Oh God, what have I done?" I think yeah, yeah that, that would be a better arc for yeah. sure. Less incest, <laughs> or they could have had you know they could have had um what are the names Sumi and Taka? They could have had him. You know, they could have betrayed him at the end. I don't have a huge problem with that. But yeah, if it was just like less weird and if it was, it would, it would need to be set up throughout the whole season, you know, that they are having, you know, I, like, I feel like there should have been a, like, like a big blow, blow up where they're like, you know, you need to show it, get it, let us into the vault or whatever it was. And, and he's like, no. And then they have a big fight about it. And then they kind of like make up after that. And then, you know, like so, something where it's like this stuff yeah. has been building throughout the season and, you know, so it doesn't just it's just doesn't just come out of left field. And and maybe when they do that, um, you know, they they capture him instead. 
and they're going to do whatever it takes to get him to tell them what they yeah. want to know okay, or, see, that or something would make like sense. that. Well, what is it that you think that they actually wanted? Like, what What would have they want made magic them weapons? But, like, I felt like he was going to give it to them eventually. Like, he was, he was like, they're, they're vampire hunters and he's a vampire. Right. So was that they, really they kill vampires? I I thought it was as simple as that. But she, okay. So so here's what I think it should have been. Just this just popped into my head. So it might be bad, but I'm just going to say it. <laughs> so it should have been that they come to him and they want him to train them to be vampire hunters, and he agrees. But then he sort of is so lonely. He starts to realize, wait, once I finish their training, they're going to leave, and I'm going to be alone again. And so he starts kind of like um, what what do you call it? You know, like delaying, stringing it along. You know, I think that's what they thought was going on. I, I think mean, that in, is what they thought income, too. But usually, when I go to you know apprentice to with somebody who's giving me all their time and expertise and food for free, I don't usually care too much like how long to be on their schedule. Like they they, they should have been like I don't know. Um, well, that, okay, that is so what they, they, they could have. No, but they should have had a ticking clock. Like they had a reason that they had to get back to Japan yes. to yeah. like save some relative or something, and he's dragging some his urgency. Feet. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, we got to expedite this process by, not by killing him, which accomplishes nothing, but yeah, by imprisoning him and forcing him to give them what they need to go back and accomplish their mission. See, I guess like that, that that's really the point that I was trying to make, and I still might not be saying it eloquently, but I feel like all the episode 10 problems are actually episode 1 problems. And, <laughs> like, that's why I really was disappointed. Because, like, those are seeds you should have planted early on, or... What is their motivation? Why are they there? What is the stakes? What's the timeline? What do they want that he doesn't want? What's the conflict going to be? And I felt like that in a lot of these in the stories that ended in, you know, poorly in episode 10. I would agree with that with Alucard's storyline. I think all the pieces were lined up nicely with, with Isaac's story and um, with Hector's story that they didn't have to go there. Where, where they ended up going. They could have made different decisions at the very last moment. Ditto with the serial mm-hmm. killer. Um, they could have made d- different decisions at the last moment that, that would have been more interesting and satisfying than the decisions they ended up making. That's fair. Counterpoint. Yeah, just the thing, um, this is a small point, but just like if you have a like a tiger trap right outside town, like how is that secret over years right isn't at some point isn't somebody going to fall into it when their friend is standing nearby and the friend's going to run back to town and be like hey my friend fell into the tiger trap or like you know like it's like how it doesn't make any just as a way of disposing of people inconspicuously it just doesn't make any sense (laughs) it doesn't and there's just there's just no reason for it to be there there's just no narrative reason for it to be there other than just rolling around in the shit it's edgy (laughs) <laughs> but it's not though. And this is the thing that is just, if I can just use this as a moment to gripe <laughs> about so many things in, in genre fiction, but fantasy especially, is this idea that, that being gritty is somehow real and challenging. Dude, it's not. It's just not. If anything, it's totally old hat. Like, you know, challenge yourself to say something more interesting than some people are serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because if I you watch TV, to... you would think like 80% of people are serial killers. Yeah. <laughs> I would have liked Isaac too to... Oh, okay, and this is my own bias for sure. One of the things I find most compelling, um, possibly because I'm agnostic myself, one of the things I find most compelling is people of faith wrestling with their faith. Mm-hmm. And and Isaac does a little bit of that. And I would just love to... I would love to see more from him. I would love to see more from everybody sort of 
Dracula does it a, a little bit, not in the religious sense, but sort of wrestling with his own agenda. Um, I would, I would have liked to see more of that. I think the best villains, um, this is, a, this is a writer tip for all you <laughs> writers listening to this, but I think I think the best villains challenge the and uh, the protagonist to question their own like mm-hmm. philosophies and their own morals. Um, so yeah, and I like, think that's, the most challenging villains challenge themselves too. Yeah, they do pause and ask if they're making the right choices. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a slider. You know, you don't you like it if if the main character if the protagonists defeat you know the the main bad guy and they don't there isn't some kind of sense of loss or remorse you're you're not a 10 out of 10 story for me and you know that's why i think like a building a villain that is going to make our characters question oh did i do the right thing like they they kind of had a point there i mean it, there was a kernel of truth to what they were trying to do or what they were trying to yeah. get across. But, you know, it total annihilation of all the human race is not really, you know, what, well, what, well, and, and what you're saying, Zach too, is, you know, it's often more interesting if the villains are sort of like dark reflections of the hero. So they're like, if the hero uh, went bad, he would be this like, so like, that's like very clearly the case with Batman and all his villains where, you know, they're all sort of like, if he went too far in any direction, he would be the Joker or he would be Penguin or like whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's just hard to have, I guess, an interesting story when all the main characters don't interact with each other for the entire season. Right. And so like, yeah, maybe that, that the fundamental issue is that the stories, we sort of would expect them to converge, you know, halfway through the season or whatever. And they just, they never do. They all are still yet to converge, um, you know, going into season four. Yeah. I was hoping that, um, even at the end of season two, that Hector and Isaac were going to have a confrontation because I think that that, that is what, what I love in a story where you have two. I mean, I guess we can't really call one a protagonist and an antagonist because they're, but, but those two characters are flip, flip, side of the coin where it's like they they kind of want the same thing like they want to call the human race and one of them's like well i want to call the whole thing and the other one's like well i just want to control the population and make sure they're not doing dumb shit that i hate them doing you know so i think that's exploring that and then who when one of them defeats the other one having that you know bit of doubt and in that did they do the right thing? Maybe the other, maybe Hector had a point, you know, I, I I would love to see Isaac defeat Hector. And then, then after all of this, he's like, yeah, maybe not killing every single human. Maybe Dracula's, you know, just a little, he a little bit crazy. What, what I kind of hope happens is at some point we see Dracula reemerge in a more protagonistic role. And then he tries to convince Isaac that he was wrong. And Isaac is like, no, I'm more Catholic than the Pope. <laughs> um, and, and that kind of conversation. But, but to go back to the confrontation between Isaac and Hector, I totally wanted to see it. But I, in a way, I dread it just because the, the problem is that wouldn't it just be like Isaac kicking a dog? Yeah. The, the yep. thing is about about Hector is a he's just so dog, kicking feckless. Kicking a little zombie puppy. He's so <laughs> feckless. He is utterly without fecks. And I just don't really <laughs> understand 
how we're supposed to see him as an object of revenge for somebody like Isaac. Like how, how does Isaac not just look at him and think, ugh, he's so pathetic. He's like completely <laughs> beneath my nose. Why is his rage not more properly focused against Carmilla, who with complete malice aforethought plotted the whole downfall meticulously and and Hector was just a tool in every oh. sense of the word. Well, what you're saying is I, I would love to see that. Have all this rage, you know, at at a climactic part, maybe not super formulaic on the 10th episode of season four, but maybe earlier where there's all this rage towards Hector. And then, like you said, he sees it for what it really is. He's just this dog that's being controlled. And that, it, to me, would be very satisfying storytelling. Yeah. Um, I would want to see that. You know, we don't have to have these characters kill each other. We can, you know, a more interesting outcome is that, like, um, my, my whole purpose now has to change because what I, what I was so pissed off about is really, like, this pathetic guy who can't, who has nothing. He had, he didn't even have a choice in this, in, Season two. Um, I mean, that shows character growth. That but then, show, but then you, you miss all the anticipation. Like, anticipation is such a big part of, the, of storytelling, especially when you're not actually part of the story like Isaac is and you're trying to catch up. And, you know, instead of all the episodes being like, what's he gonna, is he going to be able to defeat Carmilla? Is he going to actually rule the way he says he's going to rule? Is, like, what's he going to do? You miss out on that, even if you get that change of heart character growth when he realizes, oh, Hector's actually... Like Aaron said, like a dog, I don't really, it's not really worth it to me. I feel like we need to stop criticizing the show or else it's going to be like (laughs) Isaac just beating the crap out of Hector who's just like getting pounded too much. Um, (laughs) But no, it's funny because going into this, I I was like, man, this show's great. I love the show. I I don't, I didn't love the um, finale of season three, but overall I love the show. And then now, now listening to Blake, I'm like, actually, I hate the show now. So uh, so (laughs) yes, I poisoned you all. (laughs) <laughs> and not me it's still awesome it's just really that last episode all right you listeners out there you should watch season two and stop after the final episode because it did exactly what Aaron was saying where the penultimate episode actually wrapped things up and then it had sort of a closure setting up future storylines episode and did that really well the third ep- third season disaster says Blake but I know yeah you but I mean I, there's just the show has so many things going for it and just i think as long as you don't listen to blake uh you're gonna love it so just like don't listen and nothing to this, is perfect don't listen to this episode just like erase it from your memory and you'll be fine nothing is ever perfect and if it were it would be a very boring podcast <laughs> if we just like sat here and was like it's perfection moving on that's totally true and and that's fair like i mean i feel like that happens a lot in sports people always complain why are you talking about the good teams well because there's no drama. We talk about drama. We talk about the interesting things. But I will say that I don't know that I'm going to watch season four. Like I think that's a, that's the best barometer. Is oh what have you lost interest? What? Like, I, I don't. What, I'm not really that Ooh. interested in anything else. <laughs> what, what what am I? I guess Hector and Isaac getting together finally. I, I could what probably, about Dracula coming back? If you guys text me that he comes back, wait. Are, when, you, are you shipping Hector and Isaac? What about when Devil May Cry, Hyperlight Drifter, and Assassin's Creed shows up too? Only because yeah. it's called like the bootleg universe, and I think that's cool. <laughs> the shared bootleg universe, right? That's what Adi calls it. Yeah, Adi Shankar, yeah. That guy's a trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you wanna I sent you if you want to uh, see a, a really funny interview, just Google um Adi Shankar um uh, dread sequel. 
and uh yeah, it turns well. out he's got excellent accent chops. <laughs> he, he does at least three in that interview, I think. Yeah. Um, all right, so I think we should start wrapping this up. Um, so let's get some let's get some final thoughts from folks. So uh, Zach, final thoughts on Castlevania. Uh, I know we were criticizing this show really hard. I I really like the show. I actually really like. Um, the the third season and i even like a lot of the stuff going on in um the climax uh the last episode has really cool parts to it um i i like the battle between this demon that's trying to revive dracula that's awesome um and then i thought of uh you know some some things to recommend if you've watched um the show and you want more things like it, I would recommend Donny Cates has a lot of kind of vampire comic books out. Check those out. Cullen Bunn uh, has a comic book series called Brothers Dracul, uh, which is like similar uh, vampire uh, and is in a similar time. Um, Berserk, the manga and the anime. Helsing, the manga and the anime. And um, The Bloodstained... A video game that came out last year. It's by the original creator of uh, Castlevania, and uh, it's like kind of a spiritual successor of the game. Um, and obviously, the Castlevania Anniversary Collection, which I was talking about earlier, and all of the Game Boy Advance games. Yeah, actually, check those uh, out. One of one of Steph's friends um, had me watch Berserk, and that was actually pretty badass. So yeah, I'll second that one. I yeah, and the the manga is. I don't know, maybe one of the the longest running manga ever created. It's it's got like something like forty six volumes or something like that, and it's it's really cool. And I know that some of the um, creators of the anime are uh, associated with the show. I'm not sure if they're if they're just artists or uh, producers, but I saw on Wikipedia that they there's some crossover there. So, All right, cool. And Aaron, final thought. I mean, I just really liked it. It's one of the most satisfying things I've watched um, in in a couple of years. It wasn't without its faults, as we've said. We we <laughs> chew, we chewed on that last episode a lot, um, but honestly, it it was it's a great um, combination of of intellectual, visually beautiful, um, excellent, rich world building, good acting. I just I give it super high marks, and I can't wait for season four. And Blake, final thought. Um, all right, I'm just going to end with a quote from the end of the episode when Saifa comments to Trevor, this could not have gone more wrong. What happened? Trevor says, <laughs> Trevor replies, <laughs> by the way, viewers or listeners, um, the season three probably took about a couple months worth of time in their in their world. And uh, Trevor replies to Saifa about what had gone wrong. He said, we spent a couple of months living your life, adventures and victories. So... And I now we're living like, in mine. Yeah. And now Isn't that how he wraps it up? That is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to get good again? Let's hope. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'll definitely watch season four. I mean, I just, yeah, I, I, I just really like the, the, I think the animated style for this kind of fantasy Beautiful. story works really well. And I wish there were more things like it. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously we had some issues with it more than I expected we were going to. But um, I mean, overall, I just have a ton of affection for the show. So I would definitely still recommend everyone check it out. Um, all right, so let's uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Aaron Lindsay, Zach Chapman, and Blake J. Harris. 
So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, David. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay, Zach Chapman, and Blake J. Harris for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.